So today I, I want to speak about uh, Nibida. It's a Pali word and that means disenchantment. That's how Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it. And uh, this is a very important stage in the practice, you know, where we start to see through certain kind of uh, ideas we have about the world and about our experience of the world. And the uh, word Nibida consists of two parts. The first part is Ni, which means not, our form of, of not. And Bida means finding, so not finding. You know, we suddenly become aware or slowly become aware that we're actually not finding what we thought was there. If you really start to look deeply, penetrate into it, it's not there. It's, it's very different than from what we thought it would be. And that has a very wished for effect on the mind because it leads to, you know, according to the scriptures, how it's expressed there, it leads to dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. That nibida, you know, at the beginning when the practice starts to gain some strength. When we have seen, you know, that uh, when we have seen through our delusions, when we have seen through our projections, and when we see suddenly, you know, oh, things are actually very different than from what I thought. And it can be, you know, painful. And I think sometimes it's even described, you know, as I think as the dark night of the soul and all kinds of different traditions speak about that nibida, you know. But it's a necessary, you know, jumping board for the practice to gain some momentum. Because it's, you know, it's like before you always just take, put the toe into the water and when it's cold, then you should just pull back and do something else or look in the other direction. But then, you know, nibida when that has really hit us, then we just jump in. Because there's that uh, sense of aha. It's an aha moment there. Yeah. And I'd like to, you know, kick us off with a poem again from the uh, first three women which is actually at the moment being translated into German by a young German woman and I support her doing this. And we have already, we already almost finished with the first draft of the book and we hope that we'll be finished by next year. So that's the poem I've chosen for today because it uh, speaks to me about Nibida. And the bikuni is called <coughs> Nandutara translated as greatest joy. I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while and then they got possessive or mean or boring or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head and started eating once a day. During the long, lonely nights that followed, I would remember all the nice warm baths, all the late nights and long mornings, waking up next to beautiful warm bodies. 
One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry. It's not fair. No matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Listen, my heart, I know how exhausting it all gets. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. And I think, you know, it's that seeing of how exhausting it all gets. Because it's this repetition, the repetitiveness of our experience. And then it says, you know, hang in there, stay, you know, stay aware, stay mindful until, you know, that process is fulfilling itself in letting go. Because it's that paying attention to, in a way, you know, which allows Nibida to come forth, you know, Nibida to occur, that we see, you know, we are not finding what we are looking for in this manner. Because it has never been there. It was just an idea. It's not that we are losing anything. We are just losing a delusion, really. And, and that's why, you know, we have to hang in there. It's not letting go. It's not something we can just suppress or in a version, you know, turn away and all of those different misunderstandings, you know, when we are afraid of experience. You know, some people might look very, very, uh, um, you know, very ascetic or something. And then there can be a lot of fear in that. Being afraid of experience. But Nibida is not that. Nibida is completely different. Nibida is, is born from wisdom. Which sees, you know, not finding, not finding, looking and looking and not finding. And then the projection starts to dissolve, you know, like... Uh, You know, some, a puddle of water in the hot sun, it, it just goes away. It just is uh, dissolved. And uh, this morning, I somebody introduced the sutta to me uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya from the fives. And uh, I looked it up and it speaks about five trainings you know, in order to support that process of Nibida, of disenchantment. And uh, the five are, and I'm gonna speak about them, you know, in contemporary language because, you know, there's many different ways how that was translated, and some sound rather stern and rather kind of uncool. So I'm gonna try to speak in a way, you know, that people stay connected. And the first, the first of those five trainings is. You know, seeing the body for what it is, or a super practice, which means, you know, seeing the not beautiful of the body, which means, you know, not denying the beauty of which some, you know, people have, especially young people can be very beautiful. And the super practice is a, a balanced practice, you know, which teaches us to also look under the skin you know, and see what's in there and is that beautiful or what is it? So that's the first uh, training, you know, to, to look at the body, not just like the surface of it, but just to look inside of it 
and see, you know, those 32 parts of the body or skin, flesh and bones. There's many different lists, you know, how we can look at the body, at our own body or at the body of others and or at both. So that's a super practice. And, you know, this is particularly uh, suggested for monastics to do, to, to deal with sexual energy. You know, not to, to think that it's all so terrible and that's why I have to turn away from it, but to more give a, a different viewpoint and then, you know, have both viewpoints and that really helps to cool the mind. So that's the first one, a super practice. The second one is uh, looking at food for what it is. You know, food which is needed in order to keep the body going. So we need food in order to sustain the body and you know, keep the body healthy, keep the body going so that we can practice. That's the function of food. And then, you know, some people can be extremely uh, absorbed in the whole realm of food. And, you know, when, I came, when me and Diana body came to America, we felt like there was a lot going on here in America with special uh, <laughs> foods in the retreat centers. It was just like awesome, I would say, you know, how, how much time would go into special diets for people and how kind of over the top that has become, you know, and become like big deal of huge business and like uh, just overemphasizing the importance of food as a, as a distraction really from other things you know it's something which can you know waste a lot of energy and time in one's life so I think that's that second uh, reflect training seeing food for what it is as you know, as needed to keep the body healthy, keep the body going, and that's actually it, you know. And then sometimes, you know, maybe, you know, we can use food as a skillful means to create some joy, but do not let it dominate our lives. That's, I would say that. And then the third point is cultivating non-delight, non-attachment for the entire world, you know. And I think that the Contemplation of the body and the contemplation of food are the the entrance door into you know seeing the whole world in that way. You know, seeing the whole world in in a way which is uh, you know not becoming completely absorbed in our daily lives, so to say, in the in the sense of uh, you know losing ourselves in in the ups and downs of the world. But rather you know using these ups and downs in the world to cultivate our relationship, how we meet those ups and downs. And, you know, and, and the body which is right here and the food, you know, which we are every day in contact with to a certain extent, you know, they, they can be like two phenomena, you know, which we, we meet every day, which we can use, you know, 
as, as placeholders for that, how we can enter into this. And then the next one is the contemplation of impermanence, you know, which is a lot spoken about in the teachings. You know, the contemplation of impermanence is considered the most powerful medicine in the Buddha's medicine cupboard, I would say. You know, I, in the scriptures, I don't know exactly which of the books it is. He says, you know, contemplating impermanence for the duration of a finger snap of time. There's a sutta, I don't, do you know where it is? Where he says, you know, that's more meritorious than giving dana to the Buddha and the whole Sangha, right? Isn't that said? Yeah, and even having a finger snap of metta. It's the second. Yeah. Second and most meritorious. So a finger snap, you know, of, of contemplating impermanence is the most powerful one. And the next one is a finger snap of matter. So, and then the last one of the five is the contemplation of death, you know, which we uh, did a little bit in the, in the guided meditation just before. You're using that contemplation of death as a, as a wake-up call, you know. So seeing the body for what it is, is the first one. Then seeing food for what it is, is the second one. Cultivating non-delight in the world, in the, in, in the, but I think what is really meant is non-attachment. Because, you know, it doesn't mean that we should not delight in beautiful things, but it means about you know, how, how can we develop that art of delight, which does not translate into attachment. That's the art here. And contemplation of impermanence and contemplation of death. So those five contemplations, you know, they are the five things when developed and cultivated lead exclusively to disenchantment, which is Nibita. Because what we find out is you're not finding what you thought you are finding. And that disenchantment leads to dispassion. And dispassion in the Pali language is the word viraga, which comes from the Pali word ranch, which means to kala. And vi again, you know, is the negative. So the coloring comes out, you know, through repeated looking in those five ways you know it's like a powerful detergent which you put in the washing machine if you have very dirty clothes it washes that out that coloring which is you know just in our minds really it's a projection and then this this passion you know when the mind is discolored basically when those layers of of uh, delusion have you know been washed away through the practice then the mind is much more capable you know to see the ending of things cessation because usually you know that's also one thing which the mind usually does glance over or does like not really pay attention to the ending of things that's why contemplation of death you know is is spoken about because you know people most people you know would not but by themselves have that idea, you know, other than maybe if they have a, a great loss in their lives, you know, then there's a huge jolt. 
and suddenly death comes on the scene. So cessation, you know, being able to see the ending of things. And then, you know, if we really see the ending of things and we have, you know, again and again, you know, paying attention in that way and then the resistance, you know, slowly starts to give way. Then suddenly uh, peace comes out of that. And that peace, you know, which comes from seeing clearly um, enables us you know, to really have direct knowledge of the way things are. A mind which is peaceful can see very clearly. And then, you know, there's that when the causes and conditions are coming together in the right way, we you know, have that full seeing, seeing the Dhamma, seeing the way things truly are, seeing reality and, you know, the mind is changed through that. And then, you know, we really see for ourselves, each of us has the totality of the universe as their base, because then those, those walls in the mind start to just kind of come down. Or we can say, you know, there's a letting go. Which is, you know, not something we can do, but we can put causes and conditions in place so that this happens when there's the, when the right chemistry, you know. Then it just happens. And the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, it's, it's, it's the template for you know, living one's life so that it goes in that direction. That it leads to, it brings us to this Nibida, this not finding. Because it, it you know, it's, it's a way of, of living one's life where we you know, more and more everything what we have got, you know, in terms of our energy, in terms of our means, in, in terms of our livelihood, everything, you know, is, is going to be aligned to go in that direction. And that's a really empowering way, you know, of... Uh, leading one's, you know, one's life. And then whatever happens can be dealt with more or less inside of that noble eightfold bath. And then become more and more independent, you know, from if we have can have our way or not. And there's another beautiful poem, which I'm going to read now which fits just at that spot very well. And she's called uh, Badra Bikuni, Lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now luck has a different meaning. 
lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. I think that's a very great way of uh, you know, staying steady with, with in very uncertain times, because whatever happens, it can be worked with inside of that Noble Eightfold Path. And there's nothing whatsoever which won't fit into it. And, you know, if the, if the challenges become great, then it's really good to to uh, let go of some unnecessary luggage, which we are carrying along, in order you know, to conserve energy, to be able to, to stay steady when the going gets tough. And uh, for example, you know that the trees in the, in the fall right now, they're letting their leaves fall down, you know, because they are preparing for difficult times. They're preparing for the winter. And, you know, if there is a, is a deciduous tree which doesn't let the leaves fall down, it's a dead deciduous tree. Because all others, the, the leaves just fall. Because this is the right thing to do in preparation for the winter time. And then the, the leaves, you know, are rotting on the ground and then they go into the earth and the roots of the tree is, is going to store that nourishment for the next spring. And then the next spring when the pollen are blowing around, you know, in the, in the wind, if the tree doesn't have any leaves on, it's much easier to, to be pollinated. So there's lots of benefits, you know, from those leaves falling down. It's a letting go in preparation for strengthening. And I think that's that's a very beautiful uh, way of looking right now you know, in the fall where those things are all around us. Not so much here on the east, on the west coast, but certainly on the east coast. We have a few of those deciduous trees here as well. And I, I looked it up today and you know, on the internet this process, uh, you know, of the leaves falling off the trees, it's called uh, abscission. And it comes from the Latin word cindere, which means scissors in Latin, or it also means to cut. So there's like a certain, um, uh, don't know how we would call that, like a certain kind of chemical process happening, which makes those, you know, which cuts off the leaves, basically, so that they fall down. And, you know, cutting through luggage, you know, which is not useful for this challenging time of the winter. And I think, you know, Nibida is, is that uh, process, you know, which helps us to, to um, support that cutting through 
you know, certain um, attachments and certain dependencies on, on certain things, you know, which weigh us down really. And you know, the uh, Tibetan deity, the Manchushri, is the, the, Buddhist, the Buddha of, of wisdom, is depicted, you know, I think sitting on a lion with a sword, <sighs> cutting through. And you know, and the ultimate sword of wisdom is really, you know, emptiness or anatta. and impermanence, you know, that sort of wisdom, which just cuts through unnecessary ballast. So that can really help, you know, if you see a tree with lots of leaves on the around it, you just Stop for a moment and, and take it in. So, you know, really reflecting, you know, where am I with my practice and where do I want to go with it? And, and what, what fits into that? You know, and sometimes that can be rather unexpected so in my case you know when I uh, first when those thoughts came up in my mind that I, I want to be a nun I was kind of shocked it was like kind of wow I would have never thought that I'd have a thought like that I was rather horrified I must admit because it looked a com very complicated thing to do you know to, to kind of pack up my whole life and and become a nun it's, it sounded like uh, very inconvenient indeed. Yeah, but that's what's happened, you know. And now I, I've, I'm very glad I went through these difficult years, you know, where I had a lot of uh, battling with myself, you know, and run trying to get away. And I even got married, <laughs> and it didn't last, you know. I, I stayed with my before I was a nun, yeah. You know, when, when that, <laughs> yes, I did get married before I was a nun. And um, yeah, <laughs> believe it or not, you know, when I, the first, at the beginning, when I thought I should be a nun, I just thought I get married because then I can't be a nun. But little did I know how quickly I was divorced again. <laughs> I was married only for one and a half years because obviously I should, you know, I, I was supposed to be a nun and it happened anyway, so. 
but yeah. <laughs> it was very uh, ridiculous, really, because everybody knew that this would not last. I was the only person who I also felt it, you know, but I just, <laughs> I just, I just had to do it. But then after that, that was total nibida, believe me. I was totally ready to let go. So sometimes <laughs> yeah, one has to do really stupid things, fully aware, and then you get the benefit of the nibida. But that was kind of a long, uh, kind of a long detour, you know, and it was a bit dangerous actually also, but I won't go into detail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was very stupid. So, <laughs> I wonder, you know, if, if any one of you would like to to share anything with me or make a comment or so. And I think before we stop the recording, I can just uh, read that poem one more time. about the path. I, I can read both. The, earth, the first one, Nandutara Bhikkhuni, greatest joy. I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while until they got possessive or mean or boring or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head, and started eating once a day. During the long lonely nights that followed, I would remember all the nice warm baths, all the late nights and long mornings, waking up next to beautiful warm bodies. One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry. It's not fair. No matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Listen, my heart. I know how exhausting it all gets. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. So that's the Nibida. And then Badra Lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now, Luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.